So the different strategies, uh, we can use any number of strategies. <coughs> you can certainly invent your own, but the ones that I presented earlier, uh, the first one and the easiest, which allows us to really continue to give our full attention to the process is uh, breathing in and out compassion, in compassion for ourselves, out compassion for our patient. Uh, The other part of the discussion was how to use the three skills of mindfulness, concentration, mindfulness, and loving kindness in order to sustain continuity of connection with our patients. And um, since our consultation rooms can be meditation cells, but it's a slightly different kind of meditation cell because we have a different purpose. Our purpose is to alleviate another person's suffering primarily. So our focus of attention is uh, the pain of our patients. So uh, when we get lost or distracted in the therapy process and we notice it, we have that blissful, mindful moment, we can return our attention to the patient's pain, literally by asking ourselves, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt right now for this client? And if uh, we find that while doing that, we get overwhelmed, then we can return to our own anchor, whatever it may be, loving kindness phrases, breath, sensation of sitting. So that's um, calming concentration practice. Mindfulness practice or open field awareness uh, has gives us um, balanced attention. Gives us uh, equanimity. And then, we, uh, so if it doesn't work or if we are compelled to, uh, in other words, if our attention uh, remains shaky when we pay attention to our breath, then we can ask ourselves, what am I sensing right now? What am I feeling right now? We can even name the feeling, or what am I uh, thinking? And uh, if that still uh, doesn't provide the kind of stability of awareness that we're, we would like to have and attention to our client, then we can add loving-kindness element. Uh, first for ourselves, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, May I be healthy, may I live with ease, and also you can add your client, may we be safe, and so forth. Let me uh, just talk about couples therapy and then have a discussion, or would you, would you like to, shall we do that? There are three heavenly messengers, um, which... give us the wish to get enlightened. And they are uh, the inevitability in a physical body of sickness, aging, and eventually dying. But I think we could really add a fourth heavenly messenger, and that is... (laughs) (laughs) What's the fourth? The monk. Oh, the monk, yeah, right. But, okay, let's add a fifth, and that is relationships. (laughs) because every relationship has pain no two people are 
alike enough not to have pain. In fact, we even have pain within our own individual bodies. <laughs> and we have, we, have, we have different genetic makeup, we have different parents, often different culture, different uh, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds. There are just so many differences, different desires, needs, wishes, you know, different genders. We, you know, it's a miracle. Actually, it is truly a miracle that human beings can communicate at all. Who says they do? Exactly. Who says they do? Oh. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I start with the assumption that all couples are incompatible. And, actually, and it actually therapeutically is quite helpful you know people who come in to see us with the notion of a uh, soul uh, mate are really quite tormented because uh, that, that condition you know lasts uh, about five minutes in, in a lifetime you know? so, or maybe some critical moment when we decided to like pair up for life or something uh, so, you know, let's start with the assumption that we're all incompatible. However, fundamentally, we are uh, one, you know. So it's a very interesting paradox. In, at, you know, in, at the relative level, we're incompatible, but at the absolute level, we are, in fact, one. That is to say, we're all multi-determined and co-arising and, and uh, you know, we share the same fundamental desires, each and every one of us. So in couples' relationships, um, in couples' relationships, uh, we, we feel a pain in the form of disconnection, you know, uh, because of the differences at the relative level. And uh, it, that, that pain <coughs> of disconnection, basically, people tend to try not to feel, and then we do all sorts of mean and nasty things to not feel it. First of all, we try to get our partners in a, you know, to agree with us. You know, that's not necessarily nasty, but it does get nasty <coughs> when they don't, and inevitably they won't. Uh, but we also do, you know, we basically people. <coughs> when I um, wrote this book, the Mindful Path to Self Compassion, I talked to the. Um, editor of the Psychotherapy Networker, and he said, he said, you know, really nice book, Chris. Uh, I said, yeah, you know, um, I think I'm a lot better in the book than I am in real life. And he said, yeah, actually, we're usually best in our books. We're okay as therapists. And at home, well, it's a problem. <laughs> and in fact, I also had a... Uh, I had a client who read the book, and then she, she came in and said, I want that therapist. <laughs> well, there we are. <laughs> but anyhow, so we experience pain in, dis- uh, in, in the form of disconnection in relationships. And the pain is often... Um, there's, there's the surface pain, you know, like how come you didn't do the dishes, or how come... You know, you don't pay enough attention or so forth. But then there's this, that's the hard stuff. But behind it, there's often subtle stuff. Like, I feel the pain of not loving you anymore. That's one of the profoundest unspoken griefs in couples. I feel the pain of losing my sexual desire. I feel the pain of disappointing you. 
I feel the pain of being criticized by you. And, and probably the most common pain people feel is, I miss you. Mm. I miss you. Behind some of the most knockdown, dragout fights mm. is a simple, I miss you. Try it in your own relationships. When you're having a fight, just add, try out the words, I miss you. And if, it, if they have some resonance, see if they could come out of your mouth. Honey, I miss you. I just miss you. Amazing what happens in the, in the conversation right then and there. Oh. Well, I miss you too. You know, it's some of the... Anyhow, I, you know what I'll do? I'll read a vignette from... Uh, I'll, I'll read an article that was published in um, Tricycle about a patient line, couples. Suzanne and Michael were going through cold hell. Cold hell is when couples feel resentful and suspicious of each other and communicate in chilly, carefully modulated tones. Some couples can go on like this for years, frozen on the brink of divorce. After five months of unsuccessful therapy with me, meeting every other week, Suzanne decided it was time to file for divorce. It seemed obvious to her that Michael would never change, that he would not work less than 65 hours a week or take care of himself. He was 50 pounds overweight and smoked. Even more distressing to Suzanne was the fact that Michael was making no effort uh, to enjoy their marriage. They seldom went out, and they hadn't taken a vacation in two and a half years, yet they were quite uh, wealthy, actually. Suzanne felt lonely and rejected. Michael felt profoundly unappreciated for working so hard to take care of his family, sacrificing his own health for the cause. Suzanne's move toward divorce was a turning point in the therapy. It gave them the gift of desperation. For the first time, or what Stephen Hayes calls uh, creative hopelessness, you know, for the first time, Michael seemed willing to explore just how difficult his life was in his marriage and otherwise. During one session, um, we were discussing a heavy snowstorm in the Denver area. Uh, Michael mentioned that his 64-year-old father had just missed the, his first day of work in 20 years. So I asked Michael what that meant to him, and his eyes welled up with tears. And he said he wished his father had enjoyed his life more. He's now 64. So I wondered aloud if Michael ever wished the same thing for himself. I'm scared, he replied. I'm scared of what would happen if I stopped working all the time. I'm even scared to stop worrying about uh, my business. Scared that I might be overlooking something important that would make my whole business crumble before my eyes. And then what would happen to my family? With that, a light went on for Suzanne. Is that why you ignore me and the kids and even ignore your own body, she asked? You're terrified of what would happen if you took a break from work? Michael just nodded, his eyes flowing uh, freely with tears. Oh my God, Suzanne thought. I thought it was me. I thought I wasn't good enough, that I'm just too much trouble for you. We're both anxious, just in different ways. You're scared about your business. I'm scared about our marriage. I live in fear of our marriage crumbling every single day while you're at work. So the painful feelings of disconnection started to um, be spoken about. Uh, So from the beginning of our sessions, Michael was aware of his workaholism. He even realized that he was ignoring his kids just as he was ignored as his father worked so hard. But he felt helpless to reverse the intergenerational transmission of, of their habits. And that began to change with the threat of the impending divorce. And then um, 
And then Michael, this was the interesting, this is sort of the mm, crux of the matter. Mike, when Michael felt compassion for his father, in other words, when his brain was experiencing a moment of compassion, then I was able to ask him, what does that mean to you? Then he was able to, just, just with a tiny little tip of direction, he was able to feel compassion for himself. You know, that he is working so hard and that he's afraid of losing his business. Um, Suzanne often complained that Michael paid insufficient attention to their two kids, but behind her complaints was a wish, not unfamiliar to mothers of young children, that Michael would pay attention to her first when, she came through the, when he came through the door at the end of the day and later play with the kids. You know? In other words, you know, look at me, pay, don't, don't pay any attention to them, pay attention to me. For natural wish, you know. And she was ashamed of this desire and thought it was selfish and indicated that she was a bad mother. But, but after a while, she saw it as a natural wish to connect. In other words, nothing to be ashamed of. It didn't mean she was a bad mother. It meant that she was a human being who wished to be in connection with her partner. And that when she, could, when she was able to um, find words for that and hold that in her heart without uh, shame, she was then able to actually say this quite clearly to M- Michael. You know, when you come through the door, I just really love you to wrap your arms around me before you pay attention to the kids. And he said, oh, I can do that. <laughs> so this is, um, so the couple actually backed away from the brink of divorce and it's now actually so seven years later, they're still together and their kids are thriving. So, you know, Gottman is sometimes wrong. <laughs> you know? Anyhow, um, it's, it was resistance to the pain of disconnection that kept uh, Michael and Suzanne in cold hell. It was resistance to the pain of disconnection. So just as we would resist anything else, in couples what we're talking about is resisting the pain of disconnection. So Suzanne was fighting her loneliness with anger, uh, and she denied her natural hunger for connection, and Michael warded off his fear, fear of financial ruin with workaholism. But here that, um, you know, Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre's play, No Exit, mm-hmm. he's got that famous line, uh, hell is other people. <laughs> well, from the Buddhist perspective, hell is our resistance to our experience around other people. People are just who they are. But hell becomes when we resist. Yeah. Yeah. So the question... Um, Oh, yeah. So regarding Gottman, he says that he can, says he can predict with 91% accuracy which couples will end up in divorce. And they are the ones who practice criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But he also observed that 69% of couples that consider themselves happily married, um, I, I just, I mixed, sorry, I messed that up. Among couples who consider themselves happily married, 69% of their arguments are never resolved. So what are they doing? What they have established is a deep understanding and acceptance of the other person. Those are happily married people. They, you know, so argument comes up. You know, the, the same old. I mean, all arguments are very repetitive. The same old ones come up. What is it that I'm not accepting? That if I could accept, then I would be able to be happier. Oftentimes, they're unacceptable things, you know, and therefore it's time to leave the relationship. But 
sometimes not. It's good to take a look at it, you know. Anyhow, Andrew Christensen and Neil Jacobson have created a treatment called, uh, what do they call it, uh, integrated couples therapy. And basically, they say that there are two kinds of problems. They're the reconcilable and the irreconcilable problems. The reconcilable problems are the ones that are basically habits which we can change, you know, like you never, you know, put the lid on the trash can. These are reconcilable problems. Most problems couples have are the irreconcilable problems. Those are the ones for which we need to use. We need to practice acceptance. So, so a couple's therapist, most of the time when couples come to see us, they are unable to accept, right? What are we looking at when in therapy? What is the patient resisting? What is the patient not accepting? What are in a couple? What are they resisting? What are they not accepting in one another? That's our task. So then how do we enter into that? Basically, each person in a couple has a crying need to have something in them validated. And what, are they, what do they need validated? What do all patients need validated, first and foremost? Their pain. After we've validated the pain, we can validate other things. But the pain must be acknowledged, you know. At the very first session of psychotherapy, if a patient walks out the door feeling this person knows my pain, they will return. They, they will, when they feel felt at the level of pain. So when couples come in, inevitably, both are trying to um, uh, draw us into their corner, you know. Well, this is my pain. Yeah, but this is my pain. Well, you caused this pain. Well, you, got, you know, so we feel like, uh, you know, we feel um, like, like people are trying to get us to take sides, right? This is inevitable. We, uh, because each member of a couple has pain that they would like us to validate. So how do we proceed? So what we, what we want to do is, in fact, there are three steps. First, we as a couples therapist make an effort to validate the pain, which means the soft feelings behind the hard feelings of each individual. So, for example, you could say something like I said yesterday. After listening, you could say, you know, I feel so sad for you guys. You're feeling this and you're feeling this. That's so painful. You know, we want to validate each person's individual pain. <clears throat> then we would like each member in the couple to validate the pain of their partner. The pain of their partner. And it's really quite astonishing. Each person, when you, when you put them in a in sort of a private way on the task of what, when you're, you know, say when your wife is yelling at you like this, can you see the pain behind the poison? Or when your husband stays out all night and doesn't do the blah, 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 what is the pain behind that? Uh, what, is the, what, is the, what is your partner's pain? So you put them on the job with a little curiosity. I usually say, you know the pain behind the poison. Do you think you can see it when it's happening? You know? So you want them to first be able to see it and then be able to name it. Yes, I realize that when you talk like this, this is what you're feeling. So then they start to validate each other. First we validate them, then they validate each other. And after that, they have the capacity to validate themselves. In other words, self-compassion. Self-compassion actually comes at the end of all this. So finally, um, uh, what, the, the thought may be, what is our 
kind of overriding agenda or um, uh, if we were to consider the psycho a couples therapy a session also a meditation session what are we doing in there and we're doing the same thing that we might do in individual therapy which is we would like to stay open to the pain in the room that's the heart the hardest thing because of the contagion you know like the angry contagion or the you know victim per- persecutor contagion there's all sorts of contagions going on so then it's our job to stay anchored in our bodies and to feel the pain in the room and ultimately find some way of articulating it in a uh, mindful and a compassionate way. Don't have that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in a couple, you mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, can you give an example? I've been working with this couple for almost two years and um, the grasping of the wife she becomes very nice to acknowledge his pain and when she does that he'll soften for a moment and then he'll just get some strange pleasure out of watching her suffering like I'm shutting down and he won't speak anymore <coughs> really understand I'm, I'm very affected by the amount of anger in the room. His anger is huge. And when I name it, he denies it. Yeah. So how many people in the room have seen a couple like that? <laughs> <laughs> so if we were to name the uh, soft feeling by the, behind the hard feeling in the guy, in other words, the, um, what's the pain behind the anger? Can you can you name that? And I can't quite name it, and, and I think that's my counter transference. It's so close, and it's like I, I put my hand out towards him. Exactly. Yeah, that's very. <coughs> nice. So, so let's put on our male psychology hat. <laughs> How about the men in the room? What do you, what's the what might the guy be experiencing <coughs> when uh, his is it as a as a wife or a partner? Wife. When his wife uh, is needy and grasping, and he sort of freezes and seems to enjoy it. What's why is he sort of freezing and getting angry and pushing her away? Fear is a possibility. Yeah, fear of what? Fear of um, being engulfed. Fear of somehow being and fear fear of actually fear of intimacy. Right? Maybe a fear of intimacy. Hmm? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they have the correct male hat on, but feel a fear of being incompetent. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have a Would you cl- say that again? fear of fear being of incompetent, being incompetent. Oh. of not being able to supply what she needs. The whole provider thing. Yeah. Well, you know, basically failing her. You know, yeah. I, I have a client now that um, he he just refuses sex with a very very attractive. Uh, wife, and he's he just freezes inside. He can't get near her. But when, when does this happen? When he's failing her emotionally. When she wants him to be more present, and he feels he can't because he has a busy job or he can't for this or that. Or basically, he just feels I'm not competent to make her happy. 
and then he gets mad, you know. So what, what are men looking for mostly? You know, men mostly are looking for admiration. And what are women mostly looking for? They're looking for connection, right? Yeah, and admiration too. Right. First connection, second admiration. Men, first admiration, second connection, you know. Basically, uh, guys are, are shame-based creatures, <laughs> or admiration-driven creatures, you know. And so if you want to understand a man, you look at it in those terms. It's not superficial, you know. They, they um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a what? Some, think, uh, yes. yes, go ahead. I think of it as men vertical, women horizontal. Like, That's don't the way put they him like down. It. Don't put him down. Like, yeah, right. That's it. But, but don't put him down. Don't put him down. And yeah. the woman is like, connect. Yeah, exactly. You that's know, a so. good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. The sense of value comes from. Yeah, value. Yeah. It comes from. Uh, admiration. Admiration, that's right. Being, having that recognition. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If I can't please her, what am I doing here? Right. You yeah. know? What is a guy looking for? You know, men, you know, basically. Um, and I don't mean this in a trivial way, but men really like this. <laughs> kind of a slack jaw admiration. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sex. And sex, it's true, but, but of the two, of the two, they actually usually prefer admiration. You know, yeah. you look at, you, you watch couples that, that stay together, you know, somehow the guy is getting it, you know, basically he's succeeding. He's succeeding. He's making her happy, you know. Yeah. I, I'm just remembering this. So this is, I'm sorry, it's just important to know that the pain, men don't talk about this pain. The pain of not being admired. The pain of disappointing you. The pain of not supplying your emotional needs. When I signed up, I thought I could do it. I think I can't do it. I'm failing you. Men don't want to fail her. So how do you get near to that pain? How can you actually hold that pain for, for a guy, you know? So he's actually not enjoying seeing her angry or, or, or um, tormented. What it usually is, is that he's just glad, first of all, that temporarily she's stopped trying to um, get something from him he can't provide. But he also likes that she still likes him in spite of the fact that he can't provide, you know, the emotional needs. So it's... Uh, that's the, that's the pain behind usually behind the behind the anger. You were going to say something. Well, it just it, I just remember this young couple that came in last year in their mid thirties, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a man do this. But he just in the first session just wept and said, "All I want to do is be a good husband." They've been just been married six months. Mm. He said, I just so much want to be a good husband. And he was just weeping because he felt like he was failing her. Yes. Yeah. And, and he, he didn't know what to do. Yeah. And sometimes it's very hard, you know. I had a... <clears throat> we're now sort of looking at things from a man's side. You know, maybe you, don't, maybe you find that interesting since we're mostly women in this room. But um, I, I saw a couple... Um, the guy was a photographer and his wife worked in a bank, and she came in like the third session unbelievably enraged, and she was calling him half a man and useless and a poor provider, and, and it was just, 
I actually started to kind of dissociate a little bit. Like it seemed like it seemed like a movie. What was going on? And she, I mean, it was completely vicious. But what was unique was this guy continued gazing at her in a soft, compassionate way through the whole thing, and that gave me some comfort and strength. As you know, saying, "Oh my God!" You know. So when it, when that uh, when that was over, I turned to the guy and I said. Um, what were you thinking and feeling while she was speaking like this? And he said to me the words that I used earlier. <clears throat> As the poison was coming out of her mouth, all I could see was the pain in her heart. And this was, I, I heard this like nine years ago. I've never forgotten it. I basically, as, as you can see, it sort of guides my understanding. Mm-hmm. He had been practicing for at least 15 years in the um, Siddha Yoga tradition, you know, sort of. And so he had done a lot of inner work. Um, and then uh, they came back the next session, and he and she explained to me that she had grown up in abject poverty, and she was completely freaked out and hysterical that that would happen for them because he wasn't earning very much money as a photographer. And then they started to talk about it together, and they um, and uh, she decided to take over the business side of his business. And I actually wrote this little story in, in my book that came out in last year. But just before that, um, I tracked them down. They had moved and everything. I have a friend who's a genealogist, and he knows how to do this sort of thing, and he found them in the woods <laughs> somewhere, and, but they, had, they were online. And so I sent an email and said, how are you doing, and, and, what's all, and may I use your story, and so forth. And, and the woman wrote back this incredibly touching email, basically saying, saying, you know... Um, uh, his uh, compassion and understanding for uh, the pain that I have brought into this relationship has has slowly but surely allowed me to accept myself as I am. You know, she started talking about, you know, how she learned to be compassionate to herself because her partner was compassionate to her. Now that that's sort of uh, actually a rare situation. You don't usually have such a partner. Usually, we have to find it on our own, you know. And and that definitely works as well. In other words, we are practicing here and can uh, practice um, self self compassion practice because our partner is just like our parents are conditioned, limited people. You know? But. But the most remarkable thing, just in terms of what is the healing process, the healing process is the capacity to see the, the, uh, the pain behind the poison. Couples in the last five years that I would consider failures, uh, because both in both cases, and it could be my counter-transference, the wives were so vicious. And even with all that you're describing, um, they couldn't even with my seeing their pain or even their husbands being able to see their pain, they couldn't stop being so vicious. Well, their pain wasn't, um, what can I say? Uh, First of all, everybody's a person and, you know, we we enact what we need to do until we can't, until we don't have to enact it any further. But, you know, behind viciousness is always some deep, deep hurt. At least both trauma, and, I think. Very yeah, and, trauma. and so one does, you know, 
what can we do as therapists? We can try. We can try to find it. We can try to name it. We can try to hold it. We can try to share it. You know. But but don't lose faith in the model. The faith in the model that behind all these destructive behaviors, self-destructive behaviors, relational undermining behaviors, is pain. You know, we our job, as I said, is to hold the pain. Sometimes we need to find it, and then we hold it. Some people need to dance around it for three or four years before they can get near it. Sometimes it's just too hot or too deep. Mm-hmm. You know, we we can't push the river. We, but we can hold it. You know, or we can at least hold the promise that there is healing if and when we're able to get near it. Now, I don't mean to say in a million years that couples. Mm-hmm. You know, shouldn't divorce. I think, like many, most marriages are probably, you know, starting under the craziest delusional of circumstances. You know, so why? Because you made some stupid idea some years ago. Should you continue? You know, I, I, I don't feel that way at all. You know, I think couples can come, couples can go, but in the process, whether people are together or separate, uh, we must heal our pain. When I think about all of this, I also think how hard it is for all of us to heal our own pain and to, um, even with our best intentions, uh, and, and to expect that all couples can do that as well or that we yeah. can facilitate that is it's unrealistic. Um, be, yeah. I have the unrealistic expectation that I will heal my own pain, so yeah. I you know, it just Absolutely. kind of Absolutely. circles around. That's right. It's just good for us to um, keep our eyes on the prize, you know. It, it seems to me the, um, the sort of the best outcomes are when each member of a couple can take responsibility for their own behavior, their own pain, their own change in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to follow that kind of what you're saying that that um, that, that is driving the negative behavior or the behavior that's detrimental in some way. Um, really that that is the, the, the I wouldn't be in such pain if it wasn't for him or I wouldn't be in such pain if it wasn't for her correct yeah. and so if he or she, if he would change or she would change hey things would be better right everybody have that photographer guy as a spouse you know <laughs> so, so then and a six figure income so, six figure income <laughs> so then you're saying that the, the mutual understanding of each other's pain will promote taking responsibility for oneself um, and doing something about it? Yeah, you know, that ultimately is what leads to the self-compassion, but first we need to have, first we need to have our pain validated from the outside. Mm-hmm. Then we need to validate from the outside our partner's pain. And then we can begin to validate our own pain, and after that happens, then we can start to take responsibility for it. But there's a lot of layers of validation that precede taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. If we just go right to responsibility, people just, they don't know, they just can't do it, you know. Mm. We're willing to try so hard, actually, but, but I think the, the, the deeper the resentment, the longer the patterns have been going on, the more likely it's not, it's not so possible. Because usually those situations, the pain is really buried, mm. very, very deep, very deep. We can have hope and faith, you know, not necessarily for the healing of a couple, but for the healing of the individual. Because timing is, is not in our control.
children and families and with parents, but then it also, I found, talk about what do animals do with the wild when they're feeling Very afraid, nice. when they feel a need to defend themselves. Very nice. You know, the turtle yeah. will draw in and no one yeah. can get close to yeah. it. Uh, the porcupine will yeah. pull its quills out and shoot them yeah. off. But my own favorite always was the hippopotamus, which would shoot out a steady stream of diarrhea and its tail. <laughs> 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 which, of course, teenagers are infamous for. <laughs> you know, so we'd be in the middle of a session and it'd be like, well, here comes the hippopotamus again. <laughs> and it's very hard. You know, everybody would start laughing, including the teenagers. So hippopotamus, I think, can relate to that idea, too. That's priceless. We all have our way that we protect ourselves. I've never had about Yeah, it's good to look at anger as a safety behavior. It's good to look at any undermining behavior as correct, say, you know, protection. That's wonderful. Thank you. Really difficult time is when, with an individual or a couple, when you become the object of all that poison and it's personal. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, and then it sometimes becomes unworkable. Yeah. You know, how do you hold that person's pain when they're telling you how incompetent and bumbling and terrible and yeah. shame on you? You know, yeah. et cetera. That's right. You are. That's right, and that's the limit of our profession. You know, we we can do what we can, but you know, life life is a lot bigger than our profession, a lot bigger than we are. <laughs> We're just. Yeah. We're just doing the best we can. Yeah. We've actually done remarkably. You know, the field of psychotherapy has been, you know, is, is really quite extraordinary. And what we've accomplished in 100 years is really remarkable. You know, think back to what mental health was about 100 years ago. So we really deserve to give ourselves a pat on the back. But um, clearly there, you know. Life is bigger than psychotherapy. <laughs> and, and in a good way, too. <laughs> Definitely in yeah. a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's all yeah. kinds of healing that goes on. Absolutely. That we never know about. Yeah. That's true. Well, in fact, even when you look at outcome research, the uh, largest part of the variance for good outcome is, is um, events in people's lives. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, how clever the uh, desensitization program, it's not even, you know, the uh, quality of the therapeutic alliance. The largest amount of the variance of outcome is, is life events. Yeah. <laughs> so we've gone beyond strep and strep? Yeah, we've gone beyond structure. Yeah, we've gone beyond structure. That's right. We Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.